Thank you for joining us for this Vetfolio podcast entitled Those Other Pain Drugs, Fact and Fiction, brought to you in part through the support of Elanco Companion Animal Health. During this session, we'll be exploring what we know about medications commonly or not used in veterinary medicine as adjunct treatment for osteoarthritis. We're pleased to bring you today Dr. Mark Epstein, a board-certified diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners and senior partner and medical director for Total Bond Veterinary Hospitals, a group of five AHA-accredited primary care hospitals in North Carolina. And now Vetfolio is proud to present Dr. Epstein. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to talk about the other drugs that are in your formulary, using all the time for various conditions, both in chronic and perioperative period, and the question is, what evidence do we have about what these things do or don't do, and whether they do or don't work in dogs and cats? This is going to be kind of a lightning round, just bear with me, but I'm going to try to cover a number of these different compounds along the way, and I'm going to focus on the compounds that we might use most frequently in the domain of chronic pain, where we are going to focus here. And if there are questions about whether other compounds might work in other settings, you can always put those on the boards, and I'll do that. So let's start off with everybody's favorite. And if you would just raise your hand out there who's using tramadol, which is a rhetorical question because I know you all are. And now the question is, how does it work in the dog, or how does it work in general? What is the expectation that it can work in the dog? What's its mechanism of action? We're just going to begin with asking this question, is it an opioid? Well, Wikipedia will tell you it's synthetic opioid. And the reason it can do that is because human beings make this metabolite. It's called an O-desmethyl tramadol metabolite. We'll call it the M1 metabolite. And that's one of its two enantiomers that it makes as a metabolite. The drug hangs out for quite a while, has a nice long half-life, like six, almost six hours. It makes this M1 opioid metabolite, and it has this other enantiomer that produces or enhances serotonin as an inhibitory neurotransmitter and norepinephrine as an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So that's both those things, opioid and enhancing serotonin and norepinephrine. So in humans, yes, it is an opioid. There's no question about it. What about dogs? Well, first of all, when you give tramadol to a dog orally, the half-life is like an hour, very short compared to people. Number two, they make negligible amounts of the M1 metabolite negligible, and that's just not one study. There's one, two, I'm counting them on my screen here, one, two, three, four, five studies that demonstrate that there is virtually no of this M1 opioid metabolite made in dogs. And what little shreds of it they may make also is gone very, very quickly, very short half-life. Now, they do make other metabolites, but they are not known to be opioid either, and the parent compound is not an opioid. So we can say very, very conclusively here that insofar as we know, tramadol is not an opioid in the dog. Cats are another matter. Cats make that M1 metabolite, and it has a pretty good half-life, about five hours. So it's much more like people. In this case, it's dogs that are outliers and not the cat. So is it uh, opioid in cats? It is. In dogs, it is not. In humans, it is. Now, notice I didn't say the tremolol doesn't work in the dog. So let's uh, kind of ask that question. Does it work in the dog? So it comes in two forms. It comes in the oral form we use, but it also comes in an injectable form, which you'll find overseas. And, in fact, there's a multiple studies to show that tramadol, given epidural, IV, sub-Q, IM, it does have a pain-modifying effect when given parenterally. So, okay, it can do that in the dog. But that's not what you're interested in. You're interested in the oral form. And the, does the oral form have a pain-modifying effect? 
And what we've got in terms of evidence, we've got one study that says that dogs with osteoarthritis did get better. This is Malik 2012. But guess what? Placebo dogs got better too. And when you put these dogs on the force plate, there was no difference between the placebo and the terminal dogs. So not very conclusive. There's another study, Kukanish, 2011, where he gave 10 milligrams per kilogram to six greyhounds, and he got a slight bump, but statistically significant bump, in mechanical threshold. Not a pain study, but kind of along those lines. But only at the five and six hour time point. So basically for one hour, between five and six hours, at 10 mg per kg. So not very convincing for a pain model. The evidence for it as a pain-modifying drug is very, very thin, and so far, what I've told you, you should have no expectation, really, that it has a pain-modifying effect. But there's more bad news. I'm 200 pounds. Okay, I'm 205. But if I were to take 100 milligram tramadol, and which is a mg per kg, I will have a serum level of about 300 nanograms per ml. I give 10 milligrams per kilogram, 10 times the dose to a dog, it will have a serum concentration of like 39 nanograms per ml. So 10 times the dose, one-tenth of the plasma level. And when you continue to give tramadol orally over time, those very, very low plasma levels go away practically. So, again, the pharmacokinetics of oral tramadol on the dog is very, very unfavorable. Humble enough to say that there may be some paper tomorrow that says that it does modify pain, particularly in osteoarthritis. Right now, the expectation is you should be very skeptical whether it does have a pain-modifying effect. And I get that everybody thinks that it does, otherwise you wouldn't be prescribing it. So that begs the question of why that would be. Is there such thing as a caregiver placebo effect where we dispense something and an owner says that, yes, I think it's working, and, and the veterinarian says I can see a difference? Well, yes. And, in fact, it happens all the time. We've got papers, if you want one to look up, it's Consemius 2012, that owners were about 40% on the placebo effect. That is, 40% of the time, the dog, their pets got placebo, and they still thought it got better. Veterinarians are even worse, 45, almost 50%. So there is a placebo effect, so when you think you're seeing an effect with tramadol or anything, frankly, we ought to be mindful that it might be that problem. Uh, tramadol in cats, it does have a better pharmacokinetics. There are cases to show that cats do get better with both thermal threshold models and spay models. It does seem to work in a cat, but you should try giving it to a cat and see what happens. It's very, very bitter and difficult to do, so it's really not that clinical and benefit. Safety, toxicity, dose titration studies, do we have any of that in dogs and cats? We do not. So not only do we not think that it will really work well in the dog, we have no idea about the adverse effects, how often they occur, how bad they occur, probably more often than we realize. The adverse effect profile in humans on the label is more robust than you think. It includes everything from GI effects to bleeding erosions and ulcers, hypertension, seizure potentiation, and, of course, serotonin toxicity, particularly when mixed with other products. Moving on to tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline, these are the most effective drugs for shingles or post-herpetic neuralgia in people. They are not the most popular because they have a pretty robust adverse effect profile, and it's because it's a very interesting molecule. It does all kinds of stuff. It enhances serotonin and norepinephrine, but it's also antihistamine, anticholinergic, antimuscarinic, as you can imagine, kind of the adverse effects in the can occur in people, everything from dry mouth to agitation, other things. We do have some studies to show that it might work in neuropathic pain in dogs, but that's all. And in cats, you know, we have a track record of using it with feline interstitial cystitis. And maybe we're treating anxiety there. Maybe we're treating pain. Maybe both. The last thing on the uh, dosing is that plums will say one to two mg per kg. 
but Kukanich in 2013 offered that it really should be three to four mg per kg to get the clinical benefit based on his kinetic studies. That means if you bump the dose, you're going to be even more likely to see adverse effects, possibly. So is it effective for neuropathic pain in people? Plausible. You know, we can say that it's possible. Moving on to the SSRIs and SSNRIs, so these are serotonin and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors of the SSRIs, basically fluoxetine. There's no evidence that it has a pain-modifying effect in humans or other animals. And of the SSNRIs, like duloxetine, that's a human product that's on the market for chronic pain. Um, unfortunately, that one has very low bioavailability in the dog. There is another one, venlafaxine, and that one has much better bioavailability, but we have no clinical data. Do we have the possibility that that might modify pain, venlafaxine, possibly, and requires additional studies, I think. We do have some kinetic data on it, but no clinical work as well. Interesting drug, though. These kinds of compounds and the SSRIs, SSNRIs, can cause toxicities, but the data we have is that they are usually not catastrophic or fatal. Almost always these animals recover with supportive care. But we do not want to mix these drugs that enhance serotonin with one another, so tramadol and duloxetine or tramadol and fluoxetine and amitraz, clomipramine, and amantadine, even all of these compounds can enhance serotonin and monoamines, and so you can have drug interactions and just have to be cautious with that. Gabapentin, do we have good efficacy for dealing with it in chronic pain? Well, in humans we do. In fact, it's a pretty standard drug. It's anticonvulsant, but did get a label eventually for musculoskeletal pain. So it can be used for that in people. We have case reports of using it for neuropathic pain in dogs and cats. Now, we don't have necessarily information for using it in osteoarthritis, but we do have it used in neuropathic conditions. It works by downregulating calcium channels, so it's kind of a blunt instrument. We have good kinetic data on it, so we know it gets absorbed very well. Now, the plasma levels tend to decline over time, so you have to keep on bumping the dose to be able to maintain those plasma levels in both dogs and cats, also in humans for that matter. So we have no data for using it in osteoarthritis for dogs, nor in humans. If you're a rat, it's okay. We do have data for it in rats. And in cats, there's an unpublished study using it in cats as well. So there's a rationale for using it in dogs for chronic pain and both dogs and cats, particularly if you come to believe that there's a, a sensitization component to that particular patient. The target doses need to be up around 20 mg per kg, but you need to start very low, down around 3 to 5 mg per kg. The side effect basically is going to be drowsiness, and you have to work up to those levels. Amantadine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. By blocking the NMDA receptor, we can diminish the sensitization process, and we do have one study, Dr. LaSalle in 2008, where OA dogs that received amantadine plus nonsteroidals did better than the dogs that had nonsteroidals only for three weeks. So that is the only study that we have using a adjunctive drug to nonsteroidals for osteoarthritis. Last one I'm going to mention is acetaminophen, which is the most popular you know, analgesic on the planet. It's recommended as a first-line drug even in older people for management of acute and persistent chronic pain. Why don't we use it in veterinary medicine? I'm not really sure. You know, I guess there's a worry about it you know, being toxicity, particularly hepatotoxicity, and it turns out that, guess what, the dog does not show any particular proclivity to hepatotoxicity. Dogs do not make the metabolite that causes hepatotoxicity. What they do make is a metabolite that causes methemoglobinemia, hemolysis, and anemia. You look at reports of toxicity in dogs, 
they're generally not catastrophic. It's not nearly as bad as what cats will get because dogs don't have the glucuronidase problem. I'm not saying it's going to play a central role in managing osteoarthritis, but on the other hand, it might not be too bad for some breakthrough pain. Although, personally, I don't want people going to the drugstore thinking they can just kind of pick up Tylenol and give it. So when we prescribe it, we generally do it along with opioids, either codeine or hydromorphone. That way I'm in kind of control of it. So there are other drugs that are kind of out there, and we could spend really kind of all evening talking about them. But the data that will be coming in is going to be increasingly robust. And if you have questions on other drugs or on these, feel free to post them to boards, and I'll be happy to discuss them. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed Dr. Epstein's remarks today. If you have not already joined us for Dr. Epstein's in-depth web conference entitled Rethink Osteoarthritis, an Evidence-Based Approach, please visit us online at vetfolio.com for details on his lecture or to access any of our past web conferences. On behalf of Vetfolio and Alonco Companion Animal Health, thank you for participating in this podcast.